Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a show about balancing work, community, and creativity. I'm your host, Janet McKenna Lowry. All fall, I was talking to guests who were balancing work, community, and creativity while also educating their kids at home in all sorts of interesting circumstances. This winter, we are revisiting our mission and getting some more guests, so please enjoy a conversation that we had with comedian Anya Gallagher a few years ago. But before we get to that, I want to talk about the work of Peter Drucker, a business writer from the 20th century. He was born in 1909. If you know are a certain age and know anything about business, you might remember his name. He was a pretty influential writer. What happened that reminded me about him is that one of my favorite podcasts, which is called No Such Thing as a Fish, I cannot recommend it enough. It's all great facts of the week. They mentioned that his name has pretty much gone out of general discussion in the business world. I got an MBA and I had to read some of his stuff, really enjoyed it, thought it was very humanist and was very pleased that we had it as part of the curriculum. But in general, it's outdated. He's not at the forefront. Obviously, he's gone out of date. So the world moves on. But there is a Japanese novel that has also turned into an anime and a series and maybe even a movie that is called Moshidora. The plot follows Minami Kawashima, who takes over as manager for a baseball team. And with no other experience of management, picks up a management book, which turns out to be Peter Drucker's Management Tasks, Responsibilities, Practices, and then manages the baseball team like you would a business to all sorts of great success. The place that I really like to work, the place that I really want people to understand about human potential, about learning, about humane management is that intersection between things you've learned in one area of your life and all the other parts of your life. So I absolutely love this. I think that there is huge value in taking the things that work at work and modifying them to work at your home with your group, with your organization that's your family, and vice versa. I've been called on this before. One of my professors said to me, that's infantilizing your coworkers, your team. They're not children. And I said, this is an opportunity for discussion because it's got two things wrong with it as an argument. The first is that all of us are children. Everybody, so in a management setting, everybody that you deal with, including you, holds inside of them a thread, a rope, a cable that goes from you now all the way back to your inner childhood self. And the things that have happened to that inner childhood self, the things that have made that person successful over time, but for most of us, the things that have hurt and harmed us are who we are dealing with today, right here, right at this minute. It's one of the reasons why it is so important to get diversity, right? And to understand microaggressions and things like that. For those of us that haven't had to deal with the same, say we're of average height, someone very short has had to deal with all their adult life, maybe their childhood as well, being short and has heard the same 
stupid mocking jokes about that thing that they have no control over multiple times a day, 365, however many years old they are. So when someone of average height who never has to hear this thing, this comment, makes a comment and says, well, it's just a joke, or it isn't because you haven't had to hear it. So understanding, but, but maybe the person who made the joke is a lefty and has heard condescension about that all of their lives. It's really important when you are starting out with a person, with a team, with anything else, to understand that the people in this community with you carry with them, carry on them almost as if they're in baby front packs, their own selves as children all the way along, their own baggage. One of the things I think it's incredibly important for managers to understand, for bosses to understand, is that your employees carry with them triggers from every terrible boss they've ever had. And there are a lot of terrible bosses out there. The estimate of workers who are disengaged from their jobs is about 72 to 75 percent of all workers. And it is known that nobody really leaves work. People do work. They're fine with it. They can find something to like about it. People leave managers. In other words, you could have a job that's just, just dumb. Chances are you won't leave that unless the management is bad. You won't leave it unless you cannot stand the management. People will put up with lots and lots and lots of stuff. When you have someone right now in front of you that you need to work with or manage, they are the end product of all those experiences. And this is especially, especially, especially true if you are in a leadership position, an authority position with that person. Your failure to understand that they bring with them, that they carry with them, all of those experiences will degrade your ability to lead. Understanding it will allow you to open up vulnerabilities. If you read Brene Brown, will allow you to open up channels to get this person to do the best work they possibly can. So one of the things I like about Peter Drucker is that unlike a lot of his peers, he made a very clear delineation that a company's primary responsibility is to serve its customers. What I also think is true, and I think it's sort of, I was going to say it was in addition to this, but I actually think it's an overlay to this. And it is that a company cannot serve its customers if it fails its own workers. If you have ever worked in a dysfunctional company, as so many of us have, or with a dysfunctional institution, if they fail you as an employee, you are not in a, an adequate mental position or even power position to actually serve your customers. For management, your customer is your subordinate. You have to support them as wholly and fully as is humanly possible. And frequently you have to resist the people above you, undermining the people below you so that you can provide them with the support because they cannot serve the customer if they are not getting adequate support. All of this sounds very vague and abstract, but let me give you an actual Example, from an actual place I worked, I was doing tech support at a software company. 
One of the features in our software was a scheduling calendar and would make it so that you could make appointments with students. I had clients who would call me up. They couldn't get this piece working. This was a place that did not support its ground level workers at all. So I tried to get it working and I couldn't get it working. Same as my clients. And when I would talk to the people who were in our development office who had developed the software, we played telephone tag. Eventually, what the software engineers told me was, tell them to turn it off. It doesn't work. And that was to be my final answer. Now, how supported was I as a worker? I tried to get, I tried to do my job. I tried to get this software to work for a client the way that we sold it and it should have been working. And I was given nothing. So now I have to think of a way to say, is there any way to save face for a company to have an employee who is completely unsupported say, the guys that won't talk to you tell me to tell you to turn it off. We have failed to serve the customer at that point, And the failure started way back in their inability to support me. I was the one trying to work with a customer. But this happens all over where you cannot get any kind of answer from your manager. And yet you're supposed to somehow represent the company in a flattering light. It is how people get burned out. Other things that Drucker did that are great and can be brought to any part of your life, and I mean this not just with your family as an organization, but if you also consider your own life as a mission, if you consider your own self as an organization, a company, a lot of Drucker's observations still hold true. Do what you do best and outsource the rest. Lovely little rhyme. And this is true of you. What are the things that you do bring you joy? Do more of them. What are the things that you do that are constant sources of friction? Do fewer of them. The immediate knee-jerk response that you will have, I know, because it was my immediate knee-jerk response for years and years and years and years was, but I can't afford that, but I can't do that. But sit with that for however long it takes, 20 minutes, half hour, an hour. And find out why you are so uncomfortable with that concept. Is it social? Is it because we were raised to be super independent? Is it because you were raised to think that people like you have to be responsible for tasks like that, no matter how much you personally hate doing it? Is it that you feel like financially it's impossible for you to do? Because that is very context and time dependent and time driven. It may be that right now that is the case. That does not mean it will always be the case. Maybe this task is something that I could do less frequently. Maybe this is a task that I could do like I would do it, but I would hire it out four times a year just to see a world in which you don't have to do that task that makes you miserable. Do what you do best and outsource the rest. And the more that you are able to do that, even doing those little negotiations with yourself, maybe trading off with someone else where you like to do something that they don't, and this is, this is business 101, you will find that the more you do of this kind of outsourcing, the more opportunity will step into your life. 
the more open you are because you're not in a state of resistance all the time. You're not in a state of scarcity. And the other thing that I really love from Drucker was his deep understanding and commitment to the need for community. Drucker originally predicted the end of what he called economic man and the creation of plant community, the idea that an individual's social needs could be met. Now, when I was coming up, I was always taught that that was incredibly mm, paternalistic, this idea that it was a company town or, or, or that kind of thing. And I understand what that means now. Today I'm talking with Anya Gallagher, a comedian who found her start first in occupational therapy, then in the healing nature of laughter. Besides being hilarious in her own right, Anya coordinates The Bright Club, supported by Science Foundation Ireland, where academia becomes comedy. And she encourages people to develop the confidence and communication skills to be more fully themselves. All right, thanks for coming, Anya, today. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. And the podcast is about community and work and creativity in no particular order. So would you talk a little bit about, like, pick one of those and talk about what you do? Sure. Okay. Well, I'll go with work for starters, if if that's cool. Yeah. Um, So originally, I am um, by definition an occupational therapist um which is a healthcare professional uh working with people to promote independence um and really my my whole area of interest is promoting social inclusion and i suppose changing attitudes towards uh difference and so disabled people or you know minority groups or whoever they are okay but i suppose after about five years of practicing um i just found it a little bit frustrating and restrictive in terms of how services are set up and how they're delivered so i went back to college three years ago to do a master's in health promotion which is more like sociology Mm. and since then i've been working um on an initiative called bright club which is a stand-up comedy night where academics um are trained to do comedy and talk about their research oh wow and it's interesting because a lot of people often wonder how i went from uh the kind of healthcare side to this side (laughs) but i actually see it as a very natural progression for me because social inclusion is my is what I'm interested in and the whole idea of shifting attitudes you realize that actually the most significant way to do that is to pick one sector so if I just kind of look at the comedy sector you see within that it represents everything we have in the wider society of who's dominant, who's not dominant, who's included, who's not included. So through Bright Club, uh, one of the main aims is to promote diversity. So to get people from different nationalities, different genders, 
uh, able-bodied, disabled people who, you know, everyone. It's an, a space that's open for everyone who can come and try it out. And whether they go on to do comedy again or they find that one experience transformative in whatever way it builds confidence that they go on to do something else. Or they just have a fun time, meet some people, you know. Yeah, so that's that's my work now. So I see it as sociology now. So I've kind of... Yeah. So yeah. How, how often do those... Are those events? What is? How does that yeah, work? We actually had one in Dublin last night. Um, so we... By the end of this year, we'll have produced 20 events in 2019, or sorry, 2018 nationwide. And Galway and Dublin would be our main hopes. So we'd have maybe six or seven in each of those places. And then a few, like maybe one or two in Cork, one in Limerick. We had one in Sligo in May. And we're funded by Science Foundation Ireland. Uh, So it's a national project and working with all any, you know, potentially all higher education bodies. Um, It's just about trying to build a network and kind of promote what we're doing and get more people involved. So explain to me, so is there a connection between then Brightside and uh, your disability work or is it just that it's an open forum and you encourage everyone? For now, yeah, Bright Club, it's, it's just an open forum. So anyone who is in university whether they're an undergrad a phd student a lecturer a professor it's an opportunity that's available to people mm. and we're always trying to uh, recruit yeah people from excluded groups mm. as well i see now yeah. I suppose up to now and Bright Club, you know, Bright Club is about people who work in academia, building their communication skills and confidence and sharing that in an accessible way with the public. Mm -hmm. And that's really, you know, that's the main aim. And the promoting social inclusion is a is a kind of side, Mm. you know, side bit. It's like baked in. Yeah. Yeah. But I suppose through doing this, I've realized how so much more could be done in terms of using comedy to promote social inclusion. So, you know, we met Janet at um, the Funny Women event, which is, you know, it's about creating these spaces where people can come, meet other people. um, And I think exploring your own sense of humor and what you find funny can be very enlightening and empowering for an individual. Uh, So it's inspiring me now to build on what we have achieved in Bright Club and are achieving to create more spaces that's about, it's a kind of closed off space, a safe space for whatever, if it's women or disabled people or, you know, a mixture of people, It, it doesn't have to be exclusive, but just where people can start to develop these skills build an idea of their sense of humor. And if they want to perform comedy or they want to go on, that there's a bridge out of it into mm. the mainstream context. Yeah, that's important. So it doesn't just yeah. sort of exactly. become self-referential. And Yeah. What's the biggest, Tokenistic. What's yeah. the biggest challenge of this? Probably for myself, realizing what is achievable in a given time. Because <laughs> like, I get very excited. And Bright Club is an amazing initiative. And it's, as I said, funded by Science Foundation Ireland. So there are certain parameters to that. Mm-hmm. Whereas I get a little bit excited and say, oh, we should be doing X, Y, Z. We should be doing all of these things, which may not quite fit into what we're specifically funded to do. You know, right. so. So for, I mean, personally, the challenge is, yeah, realizing what's achievable, being realistic and 
working towards that methodically. And then I find that I tend to, I can take on too many projects and then I can't really do any of them Mm. that well or devote enough time to them because Bright Club is my paid job. Then Funny Women Ireland is, I mean, I don't do it pro bono, but it's not, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be relying on it to pay my bills because they're only monthly events. Um, And, but because I want to take on all of these things at the same time, you know, that's, so that's a a struggle for me. So I'm getting better at that and trying to, and also see, see the achievement for me, because I, the way I, see society and social inclusion and how so many people are excluded and you can just look at the bigger picture so often and get very frustrated and disheartened realizing the small gains that happen all of the time on an everyday basis and I've gotten much better at doing that this year so you know at every funny women event just actually stepping back and saying look at this group of people who've come together Mm. who may have never known each other before it has built a sense of community, whether it's just this one time event that people share and it's very positive or connections are maintained after that and other things grow out of it. But yeah, not getting overwhelmed by the bigger picture as well. That's something that I'm trying to to get better at. And it comes back to reflection. You know, you were yeah. I think when we were talking earlier, you were talking about reflection and actually doing that well, like genuinely. Yeah. Yeah. And holding on to it. It's really sometimes even when I like manage to accomplish a reflection, 10 minutes later, I've completely forgotten about it. Yeah, (laughs) totally. So I've been the the last this year has been pretty hectic for me. And come October, things are going to quieten down a bit. And I'm actually looking forward to just taking stock and kind of sitting down and thinking about everything that's happened over the year. Because unless you do that, you'll never see the achievements and you'll always be striving for these expectations that are unrealistic. Yeah. 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 It's really yeah. hard to do that. It's really, yeah. really hard. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. <laughs> well, you touched on it. So what's your favorite part of that work of, of the, just while we're still on the bright side? Mm, it's Bright Club. Just, oh, bright Club. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. Before every event. Uh, I do the training with people. So we come together and have a workshop session. And my favorite bit is because I'd be recruiting as well. So I'm in touch with people via email. Maybe I talk to them on the phone. We all meet in in person. It's beautiful because it could be a mix of undergraduates and professors or, you know, PhD students all in a space where they're peers and sharing the same experience. There's, you know, no power doesn't really exist or neat. Yeah. And then it can be different disciplines as well, which is very un. It doesn't happen that often that people from psychology and chemistry mix. Right. You know, um, so that's that's a really nice aspect of it. But just seeing that group to come together, the nervous energy creates an immediate bond because they're sharing this experience. They're they're all in the same place. They're all nervous. And it just 99% of the time, it just creates this wonderful supportive group. And then because we have the event maybe a few days later where everyone is then performing and the encouragement that they give each other. And then the sense of achievement that they all genuinely have 
and then them all together afterwards, you know, chatting and just the community that it creates for that. Yeah. For each event. Uh, I think that's, yeah. They're kind of pop-ups. Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I know we had an event yesterday in, in, excuse me, at Whelan's and afterwards, because I'm getting better at realizing significant things as they're happening after the event, everyone, all because at a, every night we have maybe three or four academics trying out comedy for the first time, and then we'd have three, you know, professional comedians so that the nights maintain a good flow of comedy and energy and all that. But yesterday after the event, all of the comedians and all of the academics were just together for about an hour, just Aww. all talking. And I was just looking at it and I was like, there, there's a... A community that's been created if, for a day. If yeah. that's all it, it is, it's still it's still positive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that is neat work. I, the the temporariness of it. I mean, it's like I don't know. It's like it's like learning to live with the fact that your sandcastle is only here for a short time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I know that's and that is. I suppose that's the challenge actually in terms of because we're only funded year to year mm. for Bright Club, um, and it's trying to evaluate it and what the impact of it is. Mm. And really, we see the most significant impact is on the people who participate, you know, and the the confidence that it may give them. A lot of people can say that it builds their own identity in themselves as a researcher. They might have had, you know, imposter syndrome or Mm. something like that before, whereas now they realize, actually, no, I am an expert in what I'm talking about and I'm able to explain it, you know, in a coherent way. So. But it's trying to capture that, you know, how do we capture that so that we can put that down on paper? You know, yeah. how do we, And then also the struggle with qualitative and quantitative. Oh, so like God, yes. numbers, yeah. yeah, number crunching, how many people in the audience, how many views on YouTube, how, you know, boom, 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 compared to five people in a year who've maybe said that it's had a significant impact on their life. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that piece of it. I mean, on the, on the one hand, I definitely believe in it. But on the other hand, I also firmly don't, no. <laughs> you know, yeah. plenty of things worth doing. Van Gogh burned his stuff because it wasn't <laughs> worthwhile. You know, it didn't make money until, you know, 100 years after his death. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so is this, mm-hmm. how does that stack up then quantitatively at any given slice in time? That, that I don't know, where... Mm-hmm. That's something I feel like we haven't really solved. <laughs> yeah, and working in in university academic life, it's a it's a constant challenge, and it you know, and there's this argument for and against both sides, and I think it actually comes down to you needing both. Yeah, and finding the balance between the two. Yeah, because you know we need audiences to come right for Bright Club to survive. You know, right, uh, but then. Does everyone, is the biggest impact, I mean, did all of those, that audience leave yesterday with this higher knowledge of psychology and artificial intelligence? I'm not, I don't think so, but they might have seen some people who they didn't expect to see perform talking about things that they didn't expect and then say, oh, that's, I didn't realize that type of uh, research happened in the university. If they remember what that is, you know, that doesn't matter, but it's. It's more about shifting attitudes than learning about science. It's like measuring enrichment. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's really interesting. Mm. 
Wow, that's cool. Well, good. All right. Um, so you've actually segued a little bit into both community and creativity, because yeah, yeah, because you've talked about it a little bit. But your your one of your other personas is stand up comedian. Mm, mm, yes. Well, it's interesting because since I've started working in Bright Club, I do find it hard to detach myself, you know, from work. Yeah. Yeah. Work, play, leisure. Yeah. But yes, I am a stand up comedian. So I work part time with Bright Club and then basically freelance part time. Okay. Um, and that. I don't know exactly what that means, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, I'm just getting, like I was in Edinburgh, I was in, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival there That's awesome. for August. Uh, I had a show in the Dublin Fringe last week, and oh. then I'm just consistently gigging and oh. doing stuff. How long, um, how long did it take you to get to a point of consistency? Everyone starts at a different pace, you know, and in my first three years, I'd say I did about 25 gigs, whereas other people in their first year do 100 gigs. Mm. So for me, I started to build momentum around it maybe about three years ago. And then two years ago, I remember it was the start of 2016. I just said to myself, just put the blinkers on and just do it. Mm. Just start doing every gig because I live in Galway and obviously most gigs are in Dublin so it does involve a lot of travel uh-huh. and but really what you need to develop your skills as a comedian you re- genuinely it's about just getting up and performing and I realized because it was after you know people always say to you when you're a comedian oh just keep doing it you know just keep doing it and it, it get at the start you're like what are people talking about like you know I just did it why what does, what, that's <laughs> It's like a backhanded compliment or something. But then it was, yeah, about three years later, I realized, oh, oh, like, you just have to keep doing it. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah, yeah. Like this realization of it. So, yeah, for the past two years, I just have been trying to say yes to every gig, just do it, not, it's the sacrifice, you know, it's the compromise that I'm making in terms of other things. And it really has paid off like mm-hmm. it, it does so doing all the club gigs that you can get and and it's amazing how one thing you meet someone it leads to another they ask you to do another gig it just builds from there if you're just joining us you're listening to nine to thrive a podcast about balancing work community and creativity But I'm definitely, interestingly, coming to the same point that I was talking about in my professional life. Well, this is kind of the same. It is my professional life as well. But where I want to take stock and I want to, I've I've been doing it now, Hell for Leather, for the past two years. And I'm going to stop coming into the winter now. Just think of what my aims are, because otherwise it becomes relentless and you don't really know why you're doing it and, mm-hmm. and you just get caught up in the in this whole idea of success and ambition and you know I want to do every festival I want and like I've had a great year this year I did the Kilkenny Cat Laughs Edinburgh Ivy Gardens Dublin Fringe and last year I definitely would have been saying that's what I want to be doing next year mm-hmm. but then when I was in it this year I was I felt overwhelmed and you know and it's obviously because 
I'm not, you know, I just need to figure out why I'm doing it for me Mm -hmm. rather than feeling like I need to be doing it for anything else. Just for for money or. Yeah. Or for the prestige of doing a certain festival or, you know, like it's taxing, like it's a lot of travel and it's a lot of work. So you want to be doing it for the right reasons. Mm. And yeah. And have you you met, have you met comedians that you go, like, I know it's different for each person, but where you go, you know, they seem to have that. They seem to have Mm. that piece of why they're doing it. I'd say Paul Curry is one. Mm. Do you know Paul Curry? No. Um, But I'll look him up. He's he's based up in Belfast. He's quite surreal and abstract. I don't know if he would call himself like a contemporary clown, but he uh, just does a lot of sketches. It's very wacky. Doesn't really talk. Uh, it's it's all music based, mm. and. His whole mantra is just about getting people to be in a moment where they, you know, he does this sketch where it's like everyone has to get up and pretend they're on the Lockhart Dragon from Neverending Story. (laughs) (laughs) And like, there's always people in the audience who won't get up. And he's like, everyone has to get up and, you know, mortgage, forget about it. Kids, forget about it. You know, just get up and get in this space. And, um, you know, I think he, yeah, he has a very clear vision of what his art is and why he's doing it. Yeah. I think stand-up comedy is interesting because I've only started to recognize it in the last two years as an actual art form. I never really thought about it like that. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's the people who can see it, see the art and what they're doing. Well, yeah, it comes under entertainment all the time. And then yeah. it becomes, and then it becomes under almost Kleenex entertainment. Like yeah. you have it, it's gone. You have it, it's gone. And and I mean, I have to say, I think performers in that in that space, and it may be a space. I think it's a social space, but then whether you buy into it or not, I think performers are often sort of they become Kleenex, right? They just they're they're there one day and then the next they burn out and that's it. Their career's over and it seems like a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Moving on to the next one, yeah. Um, versus the idea of it being an art and practicing an art and mm-hmm. continuing to practice an art, whether anybody watches you or not. I, I mean, not that that's the ideal, obviously. But yeah, 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 yeah. That's a, that definitely is something worth sort of stepping back and. And looking at and asking questions about, yeah, that's that creativity piece. Definitely. I had some really interesting shows in Edinburgh. This, going to Edinburgh this year was the second time I've done the full month. Okay. And last year, 2016, I took it a lot more seriously, put myself under pressure to write jokes and make a really good show. And, you know, whereas this year I had, I brought it was much more of a work in progress what I had and it like the show itself I wasn't as happy with it as what I had last year but because I let myself relax into it more and could see the wider picture I just so there was one there was one gig I had where I had a like a half full room they were quite nice but there was one man at the front who was not enjoying it at all and he was very evidently not enjoying it and i i stated it i i you know i said acknowledged that he wasn't enjoying it and he acknowledged the same thing and then, like it's the free fringe so i was like please honestly go like it's fine i don't mind and he chose to stay and he had anyway but whatever happened in that in that show, I 
was just on form my energy was good and the audience were on my side so I just could kind of like use him as the brunt of a joke all of the time <laughs> you know and it just worked it worked really well and uh, and yeah the whole, it was like the whole of the audience and me against him and I'm not trying to you know yeah. he was it was banter as well but I, I just thought afterwards you know actually if you think about it, that's actually pretty significant it, because it's quite a significant role reversal of a girl who looks about 16 <laughs> to be perfectly in control and kind of, you know, dominating the situation where there's this man who would be more typically the dominant character in right. a in a social context. Right. So I was just like, that's, you know, that's really interesting. And yeah. that's, you know, that's something to take away from that one show that, you know, I had another show where I didn't, I kind of failed, you know, every, it always depends on me as well and my performance and yeah. But if I can see what I'm doing as art and kind of, yeah, adding diversity and, you know, all of that, then I can see that as quite a significant outcome. Yeah. For, uh, yeah. 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 How do you get, how do you get, back up on the horse like you just sort of mentioned a little bit you almost used the word veil although it's so funny it's I don't know I've, one of the things I've really read about in the last year and a half have been the importance of words and having more words and fail is one of those ones where I can't decide whether it's like those words we should reclaim and redefine mm-hmm. or whether it's one that actually should be used for something negative and there should be a different word but or whether, I mean, really, honestly, like many words, there really is no such mm-hmm. thing as failure, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah. But how do you get back up on the horse if you feel like you've bombed, I guess, is, is the yeah. question. Um, again, I think it's knowing yourself what you're doing and knowing that you're funny and not feeling the need to get gratification from other people all of the time to validate what you are doing right now if you go there has to you have to have good insight as well you know you're bombing every single time (laughs) just blissfully unaware (laughs) yeah something's not right (laughs) but yeah I mean you'll like having a good show and having a bad show it's all part of it and the dynamics that contribute to that I mean Another example of another show I had in Edinburgh where I had a tricky audience again, but I wasn't, I was, my energy was low that day and I didn't deal with it well at all. And there were two guys in the audience who were kind of obnoxious and I tried to deal with them, but actually I ended up more dividing the audience than bringing it, like getting everyone on my side. Yeah. And so it's, it's just, it is the dynamic there's so many dynamics that contribute to each performance and bombing having a bad show is part of it I mean it's really important that not all shows are good or you know great because then what do we compare that to there's not you know there's yeah right yeah (laughs) you can't have a light without a dark to put it in yeah For me, it is about acknowledging that something didn't go well, not being deluded about it, you know, trying to understand why it didn't go well, but not letting it, yeah, not, not, like I said earlier, your validation doesn't have to come from the fact that other people do or don't find you funny because 
you have your own audience as well. You know, everyone has different tastes. Right. Some people like your style of comedy and some people don't. And that's okay. That's what makes the world different. That's what's exciting. Right. Right. Oh, that's good. I was going to ask you how you find the time, but I'm still really, (laughs) I have no idea how you find the time. (laughs) Yeah. Well, time to do. Just to get everything done. Just to, Mm. the the creative piece of it requires brain space that. Yeah. Is. It does for sure. And this, again, this comes back to my point why I really want to take stock at the end of the year, because I don't always feel I have so many projects that I want to be doing that I haven't found the time for. It's very hard. Like, I mean, having something to work up to, like Edinburgh, is really good. I view Edinburgh like a residency, actually, Mm -hmm. because it just makes you work a lot before you go. And then while you're there, you're just in that space. It's exhausting, but it's exhilarating. And yeah, you're just in it for a month and you can't think about anything else. Because everyone has a different style of writing and going through the creative process. But I think for me, I have to do something live. You know, I have Mm. to actually perform it. Yeah. And then I'm, I'm trying to get smarter as well in... Like comedy can be quite lonely if you're doing it all of the time yourself because it's a one person production from writing it to producing it to performing it. And it's a lot easier to work with other people. And it 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 makes it more fun. It means that it's actually like a social thing that you're doing instead of work. Mm-hmm. And when you're writing or thinking with someone else, when you're bouncing off someone else, things come together much more quickly. So I'm trying to think now about what projects I want to work on and picking the ones that are with other people uh, rather than because, yeah. I was just going to ask you that. I had just written that down before uh, you started saying that about co-creating and wondering oh. whether you ever worked with writing partners or. Yeah. So this is a classic example. I'm working on a mini series. Oh, cool. Yes. Now, th- I say this is a classic example because we've made one video in a year and a half, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, but Ruth McNally, who um, directs it, and then we, I kind of put the first draft together and then we kind of bounce off each other. But that's been really fun. It's just about protecting the time to do it and to work together and making it a priority. But yeah, we just come together and talk through the script and go away each other and come back and go through it again. And, and then when we're actually filming it, you know, things, things happen as well. Yeah. So that's, yeah. Co-creation. I have another friend who we've done some things together, Pearl O'Rourke. She does a lot of improv improvisation, but we we made a sketch show together about two years ago and we have this new idea for a sketch show so we went for a weekend together once and just did a lot of improvisation and developing different characters around this story or this concept Mm. which was really fun again we're just both in different parts of the country and can't quite commit to it but yeah kind of getting into that space and letting yourself improvise 
like it's just a lot of fun you know we still talk about that one weekend that we did and it was just fun and like this is so for me now I'm like god I I felt like I was getting into a dangerous space where I was starting to take comedy really seriously Mm. I was like I don't I don't want it to be this serious thing I want it to just be an outlet where I you know I I spend time with friends and like-minded people and enjoy it and you know and it's an art form as well so there's great benefits in that sense right and I'm really excited because I actually I'm like I said living in Galway at the moment but moving back to Dublin and I just have a lot of friends who are doing really fun stuff you know just a lot of they just make podcasts. They meet up on a Saturday and improvise a podcast together where they all take on different characters. And, oh, you know, nice. just whether it's fun to listen to or not in that space of doing it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's so much fun. Yeah. So, well, yeah. yeah. And the thing that kind of led me to doing this podcast is to try to figure out more ways of how people play and don't starve. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that is a third rail yeah. for me that I. <laughs> I'm, yeah, totally. But I don't. I think we play is something that we really struggle with as adults, yeah. you know, and like genuinely play because come back to your idea of failure and fail, because even whatever social outlet people want they're, they're they still end up being competitive spaces you know right. where if you play sport you want to be on the the top level team you know and if yeah you're not, even if it's a pickup game yeah yeah <laughs> yeah like uh softball i remember playing softball i thought oh this will be a fun like summer game where no one really takes it that seriously no way <laughs> everyone takes it way too seriously yeah um, i once yeah. played i once played and you'll notice the word is once pick up softball at a town thing again i thought oh meet some people this will be great and by the 12th time of them pitching that ball which is nine after I said I'm out and they were like so sure that if they just kept throwing it at me sooner or later I would hit it and it became like it became like this awful I don't know everyone focus on my deficits moment yeah. and then people were like well I'm kind of bummed you're on our team and I'm like yeah. me too yeah. I can't wait to go <laughs> I know it's uh yeah it's it's terrible because I play football I suppose we'll jump around in your um in your topics but I play yeah. Gaelic football you know okay. like uh not soccer, but football. And the team that I've been playing on in Galway, I'd have always played sport and enjoy it. Like sport, I really do need to get a good physical exertion when I'm playing sport. Yeah. At this point in my life, I don't need to play at a very high level. I just want it to be competitive, whatever level it's at. Yeah. But the team that I play on with in Galway is a whole mismatch of people who have never played sport before (laughs) have moved to Galway and are looking for friends are you know and it took me a year or or maybe even more than that to realize but I was like hang on this is amazing this is a space where all of these people have come together who would probably have feared doing sport before if they joined any other club they definitely wouldn't have stayed because other right. clubs are so seriously but because we're all so rubbish yeah <laughs> there's a there's a space for everyone everyone feels included 
you know and but it, it really did highlight to me I was like god we need more spaces that are inclusive like this yeah. you know just for sport because and even we go on about healthy living and you know doing exercise but how many of people are actually have a good aptitude for sport and can do it right versus not having that but still wanting to be involved and play yeah but because yeah the human condition is kind of preoccupied with being the best and yeah yeah it's uh, it's hard to create those spaces and you just made me realize that you know google in those places with with table tennis aside it would be really nice to have recess at work <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, that, that would be yeah. like a real recess not the kind yeah. they keep taking away from children but a real one where you get to play yeah. for 30 minutes and yeah you know <laughs> i know back inside i know <laughs> not smoke it, and complain <laughs> yeah exactly but it is about creating a culture you know how yeah. to shift people's attitudes get just think as adults we can be quite scared of embarrassment or um kind of putting ourselves out of our comfort zone yeah and just like going back to Paul Curry like you should have been there last night because what I love about him as a comedian he always divides the audience so there's always people in it who are not on board and who really (laughs) do not get it but I think that's what's beautiful about it as well because it's like just come on get over yourself just get up and mime that you're on a dog from never ending story <laughs> 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 and stop taking life so seriously yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 it's yeah it's funny how people will often put themselves in those positions and then stop themselves like when mm. you're you're already two-thirds of the way here you bought the ticket you showed up your butt's yeah. in the seat yeah <laughs> yeah yeah you can leave but you're too afraid to do it you can get up yeah. and pretend you're on a dog but you're too afraid to do it i mean good for you to get this far but also <laughs> it's just yeah. one more little step for you well exactly that's a good point yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. some some of the questions i like to ask people are what would you tell your younger self Oof. <laughs> Oof. Um. I don't know, because I feel like I'm getting happier as I get older, which I think is common as I as I talk to people. But I do feel like I kind of had to go through every experience to come to where I am now. Yeah. If if that makes sense. Like, it's interesting. I uh, becoming a lot more aware of social equality and say feminism as an example and I talk to people who are like 16 17 now and their awareness of feminism again just doesn't I'm 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 like how do they know all that they're only 16 there was no way that I knew any of this when you know I was still striving for everyone to like me and me to be the you know oh I'm the cool girl I don't care about all that stuff you know um but I had to go through the journey that I went through to get here you know and and I don't think that 16 year olds now are you know have solved the world I think you know everyone just has to go through you know where they might be aware of of some things it's still the same process that everyone goes through yeah because as an example say I read Catch 22 was like one of the first books that I ever read that I really loved I read it when I was about 18 yeah and I was really struggling a year or two ago 
to read anything. So I said, I'll just read Catch-22 again. Hmm. Uh, this will just like spark, you know, I'll just get through it quickly and then I'll go. And I could only, I struggled. I fought to get to about page 200. And then I was, I just said, no, I just can't do it. Because it's amazing how to read that 10 years later to realize how women were represented with it. That was the one thing that really got me. I know that there was probably lots of other things in it as well, but just no woman had a name. Every woman was just a slut or a whore. And that was, you know, anyway, but for me to realize that I read this at 18 and absolutely loved it and didn't see any of those things. Yeah. It's kind of amazing and liberating as well. It's very exciting to see how you change as a person and how your perception changes and how, you know, your worldview changes. So uh, I don't know what I would tell (laughs) my younger self. I I feel happy that I've always been a person who's just kind of said yes and jumped into things. And I think that's always stood to me. Yeah. Well, so my last question would be, what it, what would you do if you had no fear? Another way to do that is say, what would you do if you had all the money in the world? That's mm. another way to think about it. But what would you do if you just sort of had an open plane in front of you? Mm. White canvas. I've been playing around with the idea in my head of creating a social enterprise, which would use comedy as a tool for empowerment so actually what the examples that I've kind of been giving in Bright Club and Funny Women it's it's almost like a drama space or or a community art space but that uses comedy where people can come in and explore their comedic voice maybe different cultures sharing an experience learning what's funny from different perspectives and as as a tool for kind of community development and empowerment, not so much training people to be comedians. It's, you know, so this is something, it's not a fully formed idea, but definitely because community development and social inclusion are my, my two areas that I'm most interested and kind of passionate about. Mm. And then I've started to realize, oh, okay, actually, I'm very confident in the context of comedy. You know, the, you know, I've I've been in health services before and you know organizations and my voice just doesn't seem to be as strong oh, as it is when I'm in this context. Boy, that's reflective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I've had a I've had a wow. good reflective year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it would be about how could I how could I use that yet yeah, to create um yeah, there, like there's this amazing initiative called Fighting Words that Roddy Doyle set up. Oh yeah, um, he's an Irish author. If yeah. You know. yeah, yeah, I know his work. And it's it enga- it brings in school children, typically from more disadvantaged areas, and they come in and they write a story, and then there's a an illustrator there, and they but it's it's always really creative and really fun, and it's you know something completely different. So I'd love to be kind of creating the same space, but for comedy in some way. And I just I think I think there's a real way to learn more about culture, and especially now that Ireland is becoming a, a more multicultural place mm. for like shared experiences and shared understanding, and using comedy as the like approach to 
I just as an example, I had this idea. I was like, oh, people say people coming in who are seeking asylum in Ireland if they're from Syria or wherever they're from. You know, what's health? What are health services like in Syria? Mm. And what you know, what are what's culturally normal and what's appropriate and what's inappropriate? And then how are our services delivered here? And do we even take any of that into account? Right. And I just think if you could kind of pose a question of what's funny about going to the doctor and you hear that you know you let five people from five different places I suppose specifically what's funny about going to the doctor in Ireland you know yeah and then you'd learn so much I think about people's experience yeah when you're from a different culture when you've got different cultural norms yeah oh, that's so yeah, it's it's a it it's not a anyway. That's no, what I'm saying. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Olivia Gallagher, this has been delightful. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking to me today. No problem, Janet. Thank you. Love it. It has been delightful. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to thank Anya for talking with me today. I've always loved the creativity involved when you cross disciplines, and she's living proof of how interesting it is to do that. Links to Anya's work will be in the show notes for this episode. Enjoy her YouTube performances, and if you get a chance to see her live in Dublin or at the Edinburgh Fringe or on tour, don't miss it. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com. That's with the number nine to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter at 9 to Thrive and Facebook at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.